70 record closing highs so far for the day. Blasting through a ceiling. In a record-setting IPO. Investors who have been riding the wave. When the stock market is booming, we're made to believe the economy is booming. As the stock market goes, so goes the wealth and the health and economy. So what exactly is the stock market measuring? Good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome to 98.4 Capital FM, another edition of Financial Forecast. And this is where you can access accurate and timely global market outlook on demand alongside Ken Gishinga, Chief Economist at Mentoria Economics, myself, Danny Muni, And today we have a very, very special guest, an icon, a legend, and the godfather of economics in Kenya, Professor Terry Ryan. Welcome to Capital FM. Uh, if you're listening to us online, it's www.radio.capitalfm.co.ke forward slash listen live or download the iCapital FM radio app. Be the first to know what's happening on the global markets every Monday morning, bright and early, by visiting www.mentoria.co.ke to subscribe. Many thanks, Danny. Indeed, I'm very excited for today's show. As you've said, we have the godfather of Kenya's economics, the one and only Professor Terry Ryan, really unpacking the question. It's been 60 years since independence. Kenya is politically independent, but how far have we come economically? And there's no other person in this country who has served all the administration, from the colonial administration, and I think can speak to us about what 60 years of economic history is about. So I'm extremely excited today. So today we have a very wonderful program where we are celebrating 60 years of economic independence, right? And if you want to reach us, you can reach us on 0701984984. Or tweet us at Capital FM Kenya, hashtag the financial forecast. And uh, let's very quickly just start with the, the usual jump into the equities market and how they're performing. There's more global volatility, Ken, and shocks. Heavy shedding on the S&P 500, the Nasdaq, the Dow Jones, the FTSE 100. Uh, what's happening? You know, the debt ceiling seems to have been lifted but markets are reacting in a very unpredictable manner. Yeah, absolutely spot on. Uh, when the debt ceiling was suspended, markets are relatively relaxed. Everybody was uh, really thinking that things are quite stable. Uh, and in many ways, people were expecting uh, the rate hikes uh, to take a pause, the Fed rate hikes. So a lot of people had sort of priced in the likelihood that the Fed might pause on those rate hikes. But uh, Australia came in and we'll be talking a lot about Australia today, uh, but the Reserve Bank uh, raised interest rates, uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia, and that really caught markets unaware, and uh, the Bank of Canada will be announcing its policy decision. Uh, so it seems that uh, that uh, understanding has really caused confusion. So that's why we are seeing uh, most of the gains that we saw in, in the last few days being eroded. So that has driven much of the S&P, the NASDAQ. Obviously, we have some key stocks that have been driving, like Apple, for example, setting a new trend. Uh, although the launch of that Vision Pro has been somewhat underwhelming, uh, but uh, it touched a new high, but that has retreated. So uh, volatility has been tied to the interest rate outlook uh, from the Fed. What about the stock markets in the economy, or sorry, in the across the continent? 
Across the continent, it's a mixed story. Um, in South Africa, Nigeria, it's one corner. In Kenya, it's a, b- a bit different. In Nigeria, we are finding uh, somewhat uh, bearish sentiments, lots of profit-taking still going on. And South Africa, the issue of the load-shedding is not going away. So a lot of the uh, South African tide stocks are doing uh, quite poorly. Uh, but Kenya, we've seen a rebound of sorts. Uh, in fact, I think the market cap has hit, I think, about one6 um, trillion, uh, 15% increase. So we, I think a lot of people are thinking now we are sort of on the way back up. So I think it's an exciting time here in Nairobi. And moving on to the commodities performance, energy has been an interesting one. Saudi has announced another cut of a million barrels of oil. However, crude and Brent are still tumbling, which kind of is contradictory because you'd expect that if they announce cuts, then all of a sudden the price kind of starts gaining and looking very favorable towards crude. But then it seems it's it's continued with the shed. Yeah, I think there are two forces playing at the same time. Uh, the Saudis cutting the production did provide some stability to oil prices, uh, but uh, the issue of the Fed interest rate hikes, that really reflects on global demand. Remember I've said many times, if interest rates go up, uh, then the demand becomes very, the economy becomes very lethargic. And when you have a lethargic economy, then the demand for fuel goes down. So I think that seems to be the bigger uh, force playing. But obviously, the Saudi issue definitely will uh, continue to uh, be a, a factor moving forward. Metals are uh, another commodity which, are, which is quite interesting. Gold is gaining once more. Silver, copper down, steel, iron ore on an upward trend. The fluctuation seems not to be very uniform with the metals commodities as they were last week. And then, so with the, with the falling of silver and copper and the gaining of steel and iron ore, is there any activity that is happening in the developed countries that is making this kind of shift? Uh, well, I think there's a different narrative happening with the ferrous uh, uh, metals uh, really playing in here. But gold, you know, we've only said many times, gold is a buffer against inflation. So when the inflation outlook uh, appears to be going down, uh, the, the interest rates are succeeding. Uh, that has an impact on the gold prices. Uh, but a big part has to do with China. China's latest numbers continue. The manufacturing data coming from China continues to disappoint. In fact, the whole idea of the post-COVID recovery uh, by China, that thesis seems to have been oversold. And the data leave seems a bit weak. And when China's forecast is weak, the demand for most of these metals, because uh, China continues still to be really the factory of the world, those continue to be affected. And I think that's uh, what's driving um, uh, much of the sentiments in the commodities. Looking at the agricultural commodities, we have wheat, which has gone up, sugar has gone up, canola has gone up, coffee has gone up, tea has gone up, rice down, and palm oil down. So there seems to be some kind of higher purchase on the agricultural sector as opposed to the rest of the combined commodities with the differentiating factor being rice and palm oil, right? So is there anything that would be causing palm oil specifically, especially to be going down? Uh, I think the palm oil issue is being tied to events um, across Southeast Asia. There have been recent developments really ar- around um, the, p- the production mechanisms of palm oil. And that has actually become a political issue. Um, I think that's one of the key drivers. Uh, but wheat just really, I think wheat is such a big uh, indicator really of uh, global demand. Um, I think that rise is, uh, first of all, 
uh, the agreement by Russia to also release, um, uh, to allow uh, the flow of um, cargo. Um, I think that has played a big part uh, in terms of much of that coming to the African continent. Um, so I think that will continue playing for the Russia-Ukraine crisis continues to be an, uh, a defining force in our wheat outlook. We'll take a quick break and then when we come back, it's time for us to examine Kenya's economic advancements over the last 60 years and the gains we have significantly made with our godfather of economics, Professor Terry Ryan. Once again, welcome. Now, today we celebrate Kenya's economic advancements over the last 60 years. And as you're aware, this year, on the 12th of December, we shall be celebrating 60 years of independence. And the expectation of the sovereign people of Kenya is that by this time, our national literacy levels should be at least 97%. Healthcare provision should be universal. A robust manufacturing and agricultural sector the service and the labor sectors also notwithstanding. But the question is, 60 years later, are we? Are we that people that we always expected and hoped to be? Professor Terry Ryan. Oh, right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, um, there's always the risk of being very boring, throwing numbers at people. But I think if you are wanting really to understand how Kenya has changed, you need to look at the numbers because they will tell you whether, change, whether the country has changed. At independence, the population was about 9.1 million. Population now is 50.6 million. Five times the number of people, very large change. We could ask, where are they? What are they doing? Um, that would get us a little bit further forward in thinking about, are we better off? Right. Let's talk about where they are. Kenya, at this moment, by international standards, is very under-urbanized. But if you look at independence, it wasn't even... It was pathetic. There were 34 towns which had 2,000 or more people at the time of independence. Now, that's less than one per county. Um, obviously, Mombasa you know, in some counties had more than, more than one. All right, we didn't have counties. We had provinces. But... Less than eight, well, less than nine percent of the population lived in those urban centers. At this moment, uh, they, well, we are not co completely up to date because we're we're using the 1990, the sorry, the 2019 uh, census. Um, the 307 towns, and they contain over 30% of the population, and that's increasing. So, obviously, the county, the devolution has sparked the development of some towns more than others, but so that physically, 
the country looks different. You have more urban centers and more people living in there. Um, to put it into, into sort of um, a more rigorous form, um, it's been growing steadily, census after every census we get a new measure, and it's been growing steadily all the way up to the present. So in, in 2029, we can expect it to be over 40%. Um, what are they doing? Um, the first thing is you look at the data back there at the time of independence. Agriculture dominated the economy completely. Slightly less than 40% of the gross domestic product came from agriculture. Now it's 22%. Mm. Right? Now, does that mean agriculture has decreased? No, it's, it means the significance of agriculture has decreased. And other, other sectors of the economy have expanded. Obviously, the one that one would think of is manufacturing. That's the one that everybody worldwide looks at as a measure of, oh, we're developing, we're, we are industrialized. Right. Now, that's nonsense. Um, right. At the time of independence, we took a decision that we would not follow the um, strategies that were in the Far East. The Far East, the strategies were we would go into export industries. And uh, by going into export industries, competing, uh, grow our economies. We, on the other hand, said we were going to go into import replacement industries. So, correctly, Manufacturing, accounting for less than seven, well, just over 7% of gross domestic product at the time of independence, rose to a bit over 13% by the, by the 80s. But it's now back down to 8%. It's not growing at that. So it is shrinking in terms of contribution. What's taking its place? Well, um, it's almost laugh. You can almost laugh at it. The financial sector was so small at the time of independence that it didn't even get a separate line on its own. They added it to uh, to real estate. Now it's accounting for just under ten percent. Massive growth. You know, anybody looking at it? Um, on mobile phones and things like that. That is meaningful, but a better measure, at least in my opinion, would be to look at bank branches as a way of seeing whether, right, at we don't have uh, data at, at independence, but, or should I say I don't have it here in front of me, I, I do have it, but <laughs> it's not here in front of me. Um, at the at the uh, beginning of the 90s, just after Goldenberg, uh, there were 600 
and 24 bank branches. There are now 1,400 of them, right? Massive expansion, people be becoming monetized. People are different now than they were then. So there's a physically visible changes in the way that people are, are going about things. Um, perhaps in some ways, the, your, your spectacular ones are when we start looking at the gender side. Because women at the time of independence, I like this number, <laughs> um, <laughs> you had 161 boys per girl in university. National. 161 boys per girl. National statistic. That's the number. Okay. <laughs> now, we're, we're now, um, you have 14 boys, boys for every 10 girls. Oh. We're getting there. It's taking time, but it is happening, and that is part of where the change in the Kenya that we're looking at is. Is in women are in town, women are getting jobs. Uh, in 1962, 12 percent of the employed people employed in the formal sector were women. It's now 38%. Right. It's not parity, but it's not 12%. It's 38%. So changes, they're occurring. Um, one of the things that's, that's obviously going on behind all of this, um, if you read demographic and health surveys and things of this description, you'll see that family sizes us are reducing. The critical thing there is really to look at the welfare of the people. Again, a time of independence. 218 children out of every thousand didn't get their fifth birthday. So the mortality that rate over, was high. That's 20 per, over 20% 20 of youth mortality. That's, that's bad. That's bad. Right. What are we now? We'd, we're 52 out of every 100,000. That's a major improvement. That's cut it back from 210 to 250, right? That's an improvement. All right, there's still a way to go, but at least I want to make the point that this has changed the way that Kenya is. Um, expectation of life at birth. Um, in the 70s, we were talking about anybody born could expect to live, well, the boys would have lived to um, 46. The girls would have lived to 51. That's, on average, 
of all those born in that cohort. Now, we're over 60 for both. Boys and men and women can expect... This is an improvement. Um, one of the key ways of seeing this, um, again, throwing numbers at people, is at Independence, you had just over 10,000 uh, hospital beds. We now have over 100,000. Improvement. These are measures which are significantly changing the welfare of people. Education is becoming widespread, right? Now, what I've tried to throw at you in numeric terms is the bulk change from independence to now. But it hasn't been a linear, it's not linear. It doesn't come smoothly. Some of the some of the things do, but others don't. Others bump up and down. Some of you may have heard of something called Goldenberg. Anyone who hasn't heard of Goldenberg should leave the room now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> now, in other words, Goldenberg sent us into the negative range. But is that the only time that we've been in the de negative range? No, we were in the negative range with COVID. We've been in the negative range with various droughts. Now, we can't do anything about droughts. They, they come, they go. But we can do things about how they affect us. The handling of the uh, 1984 drought it, by the way, is the biggest drought that we've recorded. Um, it's noteworthy that manufacturing continued to grow. It did not get set back. This was not the same in the other droughts. The other droughts have not been handled as smoothly. One of the critical... There are all sorts of lessons we learned. Um... I was in in um, planning at the time. So we learned that don't bring people to famine relief camps. Take the food to the people. Keep them there so that they can cultivate when the rains come. The rains will come. But it's going to cost you to take money there. But it's worth it rather than prolonging your your famine, which will happen if I keep people in famine relief camps because they're not there to cultivate when the rains come. So, but Professor, sorry to, to cut you. Before no. the point of departure, if agriculture was contributing less than 40% to the national GDP in 1960, yeah, that's right. and in 2023 it's actually significantly less Correct. than the point of the 1960. Yeah. Uh, manufacturing is now at seven point something percent, actually slightly less. Well, that's right. Ever recorded since 1960, with a population growing from nine million mm. to 56 million. Yeah. Would you really call this an economy that is growing after 60 years? Because if agriculture cannot innovate 
and come up to a level where then it significantly contributes to our economy over 50% after 60 years, then there's a problem. Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> right. Uh, the critical thing is your the amount of land you've got is fixed, right? But you can invest in land. You can put bench terraces in. You can put... Uh, you know, fertilizer, and you can do all sorts of things. You can irrigate it. You can, so the uh, agriculture can increase its productivity. For as long as it is a lifestyle, we're wasting our time. It's agriculture has got to be seen as a commercial activity. That should be the approach. That should be the approach. So. The lifestyle of I've got to have a piece of land to get buried on, forget it. <laughs> right? That's that's just that's the past. You've got to start thinking in terms of um, investment productively. Now, here I'm going to be unpopular, but. Uh, a high proportion of our university graduates do not get university-level jobs. They get jobs which could have been done with somebody from high school, right? Technical institution. Technical institutions, yeah, exactly. In other words, these are perfectly good use. Now, the university has our best brains. They're the best guys and gals that we've got, and we send them there to be unemployed for four years. God, what a mess. That's not a good use of our skilled manpower. We can do a lot better than that. Um, this is part of the direction which we've got to start thinking about because urbanization is going to be happening don't think that this you're going to turn back the clock that agriculture will have a smaller population and a higher productive production so rather than me subdividing my land again and again and again it will be nasonya pomoja you know you'll be you'll be um, so the economy is a scale will be once more. I grew up on a farm in, in Mola, by the way. Um, the, and if you have less than 30 acres, you can't grow wheat. You, it's just not the... Commercially it. viable. It's not commercially viable because you can't bring the tractors on and all the rest of that sort of stuff. So, in other words, you've got to face this as a, rea as a reality. And there are people who will treat uh, agriculture as, as an industry, which is what it should be. Definitely the financial sector will expand. When, there's no doubt about that. You'll go, because there's an immense amount of innovation there. IT will expand, immense amount of innovation there. Manufacturing doesn't, doesn't need to expand unless it is competitive. Now, I'm going to go back to my story. So, switch off, switch on, right, reboot. Right. Independence. 
So we got independence. Now, all of Africa was getting independence around the same sort of time. The intellectuals, the dominant intellectuals were Senghor, Nyerere, and Nkrumah. They were the dominant intellectuals of the continent at the time of independence. Ignore Senghor for the moment. Um, Nyerere and um, Nkrumah were both talking about African socialism. And they were using a language and not speaking to each other at all. Um, Ghana was was heading into uh, scientific socialism, whereas Nyerere was going into Ujamaa. But they were both talking of scientific socialism. Now, what did we do when we got out our independence? Right. Um, with all respect to Musée, the intellectual was Mboya. Mboya was the intellectual of the time. To some extent, also Philip Ndegwa, uh, Sajit Hare, these were the people who were pulled down from Makerere to uh, give some, some body <laughs> to, to the planning. Now, you couldn't at that time reject the language, but you could tinker with it and play around with it and make it mean something different, just as uh, Ujamaa is not the same as scientific socialism. So we wrote sessional paper number 10 of 1986, which made us a market economy, and that is the difference between Kenya and most of Africa that we were a market economy. Um, we, didn't, we didn't nationalize, we didn't socialize, you know, we did, um, our markets were terribly imperfect, really imperfect. Uh, technically, you, um, at independence, you had institutional capture so that the Asian and our settler communities were moving out of, many of them leaving the country, some staying on in the country, but licensing, um, all sorts of, of things were brought in, transferring the privilege from those immigrant communities to the indigenous communities. And was that to our favor, making Kenya a market? And so Kenya was a market, Economy. albeit imperfect, because those the uh, these. Uh, Asian and Euro European uh, communities were running monopolies and all, blah, 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 and all that sort of stuff. So you inherited them. I, I, I think it's an, that's an important uh, point that uh, Prof has raised. The, the policy papers that have uh, d f framed the Kenyan economic history, um, and I think I would say there are three of them. Mm. Uh, we had uh, session paper number 10, 1965, um, session paper number one of 1986, which Prof was the brains behind. Yes. We also had the blue book that talked about, you know, the district focus, you know, for rural development. This is almost, you'd say, the precursor towards devolution, really bringing growth. Prof, do you think these are the three key fundamental policies that have shaped the Kenya we know? I would, I would regard them as the critical ones. Very different, very, very different. 
and their, their purpose. Um, but the point was that unlike endless other policy papers, and we, we've produced a huge number of policy papers, these all had vision. Mm -hmm. They all looked into the horizon. They said, this is the direction we want to go. Um, to take session paper number one uh, of 1986 as, a, as a, an example, when we were writing it, we carefully did not put in any dates when we were going to do anything. We said, these are, these are what we're going to do, but we didn't tell you when. Uh, so we it could have been a hundred years later. Well, no, <laughs> so no, long as it's oh done, no, then it was a bit more. It was a little bit more cunning than that. You wait for the ripe time as opposed to the unripe time, <laughs> and so you slip your your policy reform in when it's likely to go through. Don't put a policy reform in when you're going to walk into a brick wall. Stupid. Um, in other words. So the changes were designed to say this is how we want to go forward. Um, and they're realistic. With all respect to Vision 2030, it's not realistic. It has, it has a number of things which just ca cannot be, right? But before, before Vision 2030... Was a 1986 paper realized within the context of the Kenyan economy? As you guys wrote it, was it realized to the extent that we say, yes, we can put a check here, we have achieved this, we've achieved this, we well, failed on this part, and we are relooking on how to... Well, now, people do not refer back to it in quite that, that way. But we've done it. It, it told you... And it's in there. It says, we're going to urbanize. Urbanization is going to come. And you better start preparing for it. Because if you don't prepare for it, you're going to have unemployment all over the place. Which we have. <laughs> no. Oh, no, no. You don't even know what unemployment. You've got underemployment. You've got underemployment. You've got, you do have unemployment, but it's not, not of the order of magnitudes that we're talking about. I mean, we would be talking about orders of magnitude of 40% unemployed, not underemployed. And right now it stands at 6%, so it's underemployment. Yeah, so under, underemployment, we're not saying it's nice. We're just saying it's better than being unemployed. Um. The other, the other aspect of the, of this sort of policy reform, um, to follow your your point through a little bit, Danny, is um, the my minister was uh, Honourable Saitoti, George Saitoti, uh, at the time, and every time he did a budget speech, he would stand up, and he would say. Right, as I said in session paper number one of 1986, we're now going to do beep, 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 and then he would move on. In other words, he kept everybody remembering that paper is there and it is alive and it's well. In other words, these are reforms that are going to change Kenya. 
Did he anticipate everything? No. Nobody anticipated uh, Safaricom. Nobody anticipated M-Pesa. I mean, these are things which are um, there and you need to build them into your new thinking. That's what, um, that's what you've got to sort of work at. Don't, don't keep going back to the golden age. The golden age is not there. Um, I would certainly argue that we are still very vulnerable Invulnerable in a, in at least three sectors. Sec no, directions, okay. not sectors. Mm. Directions. One is drought occur. There's nothing I I can get down on my knees and pray for rain, but uh, it doesn't cure my drought, <laughs> right? So drought will occur and they will continue to occur. Don't 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 think they're going to go away, right? So oil prices are going to change. We think we've got bad news in oil. I have a piece of paper here which tells me that your, your oil prices back then December 1973, oil was $4.25 uh, a barrel. In March the following year, that's just four months later, it was 11.8. This is during the period of the world oil crisis, right? This is, no, there we had oil crisis. Just slightly we after. Had, we had oil crisis all along. We've had oil, oil, oil crises that are like droughts. They will occur. Don't think that they're going to go away. Right? In other words, you're vulnerable to them. Now to tell you my, my, my story. Hmm. Um, We told you that we, we were a market economy. Now, this was very important, really important, because we were the only market economy. And so for, so- On the continent? So the, on the- uh, Or really, in East Africa? Yeah. No, 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 continent. On the uh, continent? Yeah, uh, real, real uh, market as, as understood. And this meant that in the world, the donor world, they needed to, sh to demonstrate that markets work. And so therefore, they were very generous to us. They, they lent over backwards to make sure that Kenya succeeded. 47% of my deficit was financed by foreign funds from the time of, we began, well, from 66 up to 80, up to the late 80, well, just before. The structural yeah. adjustment programs. Now, 
These are huge numbers, but you're completely vulnerable. So if the donors switch the tap off, (laughs) you're in in the ICU, right? And so that, um, that aspect of Kenya's economy came home to roost in 1971, 1991. Um, I was there. Uh, right. Goldenberg, as you all know, started in 1992. Uh, no, 1990. Mm. It ended in 92. Mm. Mm. Okay. Right. So, um, we went to Paris for an ordinary, a perfectly scheduled consultative group meeting. These go every couple of years you go to Paris. And, um, but they, in Paris, had carefully decided that they wanted Kenya to be a multi-party uh, democracy. Uh, this is the era of Smith-Hempston and all that stuff, the Saba Saba, etc. right? And so when we went to Paris, we, we went as technicians prepared to argue about balance of payments and budget deficit and right? whereas all they were interested in was governance. That was the only thing that they wanted to talk about. We didn't... We were Prepare for that. We were completely unprepared for it. So they froze aid on us. They literally froze aid. Uh, The way it was done, it's very simple. The IMF, uh, at every consultative group meeting has the same format. The IMF will produce a balance of payments at the beginning of the meeting, and it will always be designed to have an unfinanced gap. It's designed like that because the IMF wants to talk to all the various people there and say, what will you give and what will you give? And so they fill the gap, right? That's the way that it that works. It's been very successful, perfectly satisfactory. But on this occasion, they just said, we're not going to give. So the IMF then said, well, my, uh, I have an unfinanced gap. And because I have an unfinanced gap in your balance of payments, you do not have a macroeconomic framework. And a macroeconomic framework is a sine qua non. It's a necessary condition for aid... Disbursement. For aid disbursement. So Kenya didn't have a macroeconomic framework from 1966 to 1992. Oh no! As a market economy, uh, no, we we then we then said, oh no no no, right. So you've frozen aid, aid on us. Now that means you're not going to lend us any money. Ha ha ha! <laughs> <laughs> right. We owe you a whole lot of money because we borrowed money from you, and we're just not going to pay it to you. We're going to borrow it from you. Ha ha ha! So we defaulted on debt. And this was the first time. Completely cold-blooded to, to, force, wow. to force them. Now, they came, to, they, 
they went back to the drawing board and they said, right, right, wait, 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 can you, we can't have this happen. Um, because, of course, that borrowing, they were, they were saying, you know, where's my money? Oh, we just borrowed it from you. Um, so um, we went to Paris. Uh, well, actually, we, we, this uh, was now not a consultative group meeting. This is a Paris club meeting. So Paris club. We went there and we said, no, we don't want debt forgiveness. We're not looking for debt forgiveness. We just want to reschedule the debt that we've defaulted on. And you're going to lend us this new money. And they said, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and so they lent us the new money. And we were on our way again. But never again will we go into the donor dependency like that because we learned to live without donor funds. How then do you explain the Eurobond? The, no, the Eurobond is, uh, relates to a completely different thing, Com completely different. This is now you're talking about people looking for um, externalizing the, the debt. That's it. So it's not a. It's a completely different thing. It's it's, it. And just tied to that, because I think Danny's question is quite uh, apt. Mm. Uh, Eurobond being commercial debt, yeah. and what Prof is talking about is uh, donor concessional debt. Prof, if I was to ask you, which of the two types of debts between commercial and concessional both have their pros and cons? Which of the two would you prescribe for Kenya, and why? Oh. Um, diff difficult question. Um, mainly, see the the commercial mm, commercial debt is uh, is untied to anything. Correct. Right. Whereas, if I borrow on concessional terms, it is by and large tied to particular things. The the infamous structural adjustment loans were tied to a policy reform. Now, Slight digression, but it's worth worth people knowing. Um, so, the, a stru the structural adjustment loans that we took, and we sign on them, and they have a, what's called a policy matrix. And the policy matrix has got a series of, of things which are actions and dates by which that action will be taken. Sometimes they also get give you exactly how it's going to be measured. But so that uh, that policy matrix is what triggers the release of, of the tranches because they don't give you all the money at once. They give you bits and pieces. You, you fulfill these functions. We now give you more money. You fill more money, right? Um, so for example, in six months, we'll raise the tax on fuel and then they, uh, they, they that that could be a trigger condition you'd have to actually look at the matrix to find out whether that was in but that one that, of them that's uh, the sort of i mean to take a very a very practical one um kenya was was made to sign up on birth control as a policy condition for release of data wow full stop right so you you've got that didn't work quite well. We're not fifty million. <laughs> so no, in other words, you are you've got to realize that the, that life at the negotiating table is you're weak, and they are strong. 
And so you you have to try. The first structural adjustment loan, which um, when I came into, into government, it was already signed. It had 96 monitorable conditions, 96. Look, if I put the whole civil service just trying to, you know, one person. So your, your capacity to absorb change is unrealistically strained, right? All right. We moved on from there, and we, we moved into um, sectoral credits. They're much better. Sectoral credits were um, much better uh, encompassed because they didn't have a, a whole sort of cherry tree of all sorts of unrelated things. Um, but so donor, we've changed the language. We no longer call them donors. We call them development partners, nice. right? So, because they're not donors. But many of the countries have demonstrated an immense un effort to understand Kenya's independence. I would say, I would separate, I would bring out two, which you, neither, neither of you would guess. Mm -hmm. Ones that have tried to understand Japan, Sweden. Not the United States, not the United Kingdom. Not China. Where? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but see, it's to understand what you're trying to do. And we would like to be part of your success story. Right? It's a di different approach very good approach um, so when you're negotiating you're all the time on the back foot you know you you can't be aggressive because you are asking for assistance right difficult so the answer to your question is if I borrow commercially I don't have to worry but if I borrow concessionally, I have to make sure that I'm, uh, you know, conforming, that we're, we're adequately in step. And so, Prof, just before we run out of time, what <laughs> would you say is Kenya's trajectory after 60 years of economic independence? Up. Up? Full stop. Quantify. You want to, you asked me a trajectory, that's the answer. The trajectory is up, not down. In other words, we're not we're not running horizontal. Um, don't think of a static world. Static worlds are down because the population will be increasing, the urban centres will be increasing. And you better decide what you're going to be doing with them.
Are you aligned with the proposals in the finance bill, for example, that is about to be tabled in Parliament? I'm not going to get involved in that. <laughs> no way, no way. <laughs> Prof, Prof clearly came to discuss economic history of Because we, we need to know, we need to know whether this no. is actually the right path we are taking. No. We, we, we have reminisced about the past and how good it was, and maybe, yes, the country is growing economically, but then... There also is the significant change that is staring us in the face where now we are going into very unfamiliar territory in terms of inflation. You know, well, we, we've, been, we've been in the inflation. We've been in that in inflation of, the, of that world many times. Yeah, 9%. At the present, the most recent data was 8%. Right? That was just the other day. We've lived outside there for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. You you t look at all the t all the the inflation from who oh, nineteen seventy four to nineteen ninety five. Never goes below double digit. Never. Mm. Right. So, in other words, uh, what I'm trying to, to get at is deal with facts, understand what they mean. Remember that inflation is not the cost of living. Inflation is the cost of living a particular lifestyle. <laughs> right. It's a different thing. It's not the same. I have lots of sympathy with low-income earners. Sukuma Wiki, expensive, right? And so, in other words, if I'm trying to look at where the where the economy is going, I would be looking at which are the sectors that are going to be expanding? Which are the sectors that are going to be... So Please elaborate, and then we can end on that note. I've already said that agriculture has got to become commercial. It has to be commercial. It cannot be a lifestyle. Right? So, um, clearly, parastatals are a pain in the neck. And they are being used as a, as a way of um, paying off political debts. So government size has to be evaluated again. Okay. Third. So, no, these are, these are the sort of... The, clearly, my own um, particular bias is... If I look at the young kiddies, now I'm talking about the Z generation, you go with a mobile phone and you hand it to this guy and you say to him, look, this thing doesn't work. Four minutes later, he gives it back, no, it's working. The, we have young guys in the IT who can rival India. Now, India is the benchmark. We can write software, we can do, we can, 
It's, uh, it's a growth sector, but it is not going to happen if we can't guarantee power 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 364, oblique stroke five, oblique stroke six. Power has got to be there the whole time. At what expense? Forget about what expense. This is the cost of if you want that industry. If you don't want that industry, you don't need to do it. Well, that has been <laughs> Professor Terry Ryan as we come to the close of this episode today on Financial Forecast. Ken, closing thoughts? Wow, very, very powerful. You know, when you're listening to uh, Prof. Ryan, I mean, you can only sit back and just absorb uh, the wisdom. And I completely agree with him. And I think we need to have a couple more sessions with him because we've not talked about labor markets. Time has been very short. Yes, I yeah, agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a bit to discuss six decades of economic history in one hour. It's not easy. But thank you so much, Prof. I mean, I think this has been very insightful and really appreciate your time and your company. The godfather of economics in Kenya, Professor Terry Ryan, thank you very much for honoring us today. Ken Gishinga, Chief Economist, Mentor Economics, thank you very much. You can catch up with this latest episode as well as previous episodes of Financial Forecast on Capital FM SoundCloud page or anywhere else where you get your podcast from. Asante Nisano. <laughs>